Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free while lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, I am honored to have two guests with me today to talk about their journey, their joys, their career in medicine, and what they have been up to. Our two guests, one is a family medicine physician who struggled with burnout. Her husband, a chiropractic sports medicine physician, and both of these guys were working so hard and they really had to kind of come come back to why are we doing this and changing their careers. So I'm really looking forward to talking to them and getting to know about their journey, their joys and lessons along the way. Please help me welcome Dr. Sharissa Sandro and Dr. Alexandro. Welcome guys. Hello, thanks for having us. Hello, it's great to be here today. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, for people, people that uh, don't know you guys, we we're talking beforehand. You're in Bend, Oregon. So on the West Coast, enjoying, I'm sure, all the hiking and great uh, things out there, huh? Yes, it is. It is an outdoor Mecca for sure. That is it's probably what it's known for, I suppose. Yeah, we moved here. Uh, we've been visiting Bend uh, as a vacation spot for the past 10 plus years and during COVID when we were visit, when we were lived like remote and stuck in our house and we were like, we are, work remote. Why are we not living in beds? <laughs> like what took us so long to move here? And so we ended up making the move, like actually a lot of other people. See. <laughs> the problem was we weren't the only ones that were thinking that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the price is so true. <laughs> so true. So let's talk about growing up and your journey. So are you guys from Oregon or where are y'all from originally? No, actually, I grew up in the outskirts of Philadelphia. Um, and Alex grew up in New Jersey. <laughs> he was born in Miami, um, Florida, but grew up in New Jersey. East Coast to West Coast people, huh? East Coast to West Coast. We yeah. made the migration. <laughs> so both of you being in the medical space, what um, did you have growing up? Did you have medicine influences? Tell us about that aspect and, and what was like growing up for you. No, I actually not at all. Actually, I was the first person that graduated college in my family, let alone any sort of graduate education. And I think that the reason I decided to go to medical school was actually along the lines of not prove to my dad or my parents that I don't need them, but to prove to myself that like, I don't need any support from anybody. I can do this on my own. And so it was definitely 
I think rooted out of um, this space of not wanting to live a life of struggle and poverty. Um, I didn't live in poverty, poverty, but I was in the kind of lower middle class and, and there was a lot of struggle. My dad claimed, my parents claimed bankruptcy twice and, wow. um, and there was a lot of job changes. Um, and job losses and my dad had started a few businesses and lost a few businesses and i think internally there was this piece of me that felt very strongly that i needed to um, create something of success that would allow me to not have to depend on somebody else in my life i think about that shariza and i think Gosh, I mean, probably growing up, we just just want stability, right? You get tired of that roller coaster. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So tell me, tell me a little bit about in your case, and then we'll talk to Alex about his. Like, what what was your relationship with money and learning about money in in this situation where it seems like there really wasn't a good example? I I grew up with a scarcity mindset around money, and took me, I mean, it was only in the last decade that I was intentionally learning how to shift myself into an abundance mindset. And I thought that I had done the work and was living in more of an abundance mindset and and something had happened. A, a family member had asked to borrow money and it felt like a huge, like uh, not inconvenience, but it felt like this struggle for me where it was, we didn't have the excess of money. And so I was, I was not feeling like we could easily give, but we certainly had enough money to give in, in that situation. And so I recognized in myself that I was still living in a scarcity mindset. And, and that was actually a time when I started studying abundance mindset and, and looking into it intentionally and really researching it because I didn't want to be living in that mindset anymore. And so I think that my mom very much lived in fear of finances and I think still does. And my dad just lived without, like in his mind, he just didn't have unless somebody else provided for him. And, and in general, my mom provided. And I just didn't want that. Um, in fact, my dad, once I had my, when I was graduating medical school, my uncle reminded me of a time when I was very young and I was pointing out a beautiful home that I liked. And my dad said to me, well, you better marry someone rich someday. <laughs> and my response, mm. and I was less than 10 years old. And my response to my dad was, what are you talking about? I'm gonna be rich. And so from a very young, age, I had made this decision that I did not need somebody else, my parents or a man or somebody else to take care of me. And so I think that I saw them struggling and somehow that just created this space within myself of recognition that that was not going to be me. Well, Alex, obviously, you know, you, if you wanted to be a kept man, you know, that's a good 
good candidate right there. So. <laughs> yeah. Alex, tell us a little bit about, about you growing up on, on the East Coast. What, uh, what was your, your upbringing like in comparison to, to your wife's? Yeah, I think that we actually come from a similar path. Um, I had no influence. Uh, frankly, I didn't have any influence really from parents, and they uh, they just weren't really available to, to do that for my brother and myself. It, for sure, I had no influence in medicine, and... That, that was kind of the journey. Like in the beginning is just figuring out and floundering around. Like, what are you supposed to do when you grow up? That's the, that's the question we ask everybody. What do you want to be when you grow up? Which ironically is becoming one of my most agitating questions. I deal with this with our kids right now. We have a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old. And, you know, they're at that age in school where they're talking about what do you want to be when you grow up? And... You know, I guess on some level I understood this early on, and I'll get into that in a sec, but I think it's the totally wrong question that we ask kids, and then we spend the first 20 years of our life trying to figure out what we want to be when we grow up, and then when we actually put in all the work to get there, we spend the next 40 years trying to figure out how to get out of the thing that we actually worked our butts off to get into. So from an early age, we've we've kind of put into our kids, the question isn't really so much what do you want to be when you grow up as much as the question is, what kind of life do you want to live? And through that, I would tell you, I think what led me down the medical path um, and I've, I've always been very transparent about this, but it was twofold. Number one, I've just always inherently had this call to want to help people. The second part was I just wanted to create a certain lifestyle for my family that I did not have the ability to experience um, when I was younger and had to deal with, you know, the financial burden, not knowing where money was coming, where it was going, you know, what would we be able to do, not do all the things that as, as a child I was told, you know, well, we're doing this and they would they would make it seem like it was this extravagant experience and it was you know us going out to dinner at the local buffet so knowing that i wanted to create a different result than what had been created for me and wanting to help people the one thing that just landed was into medicine i was fortunate years ago i had a very important mentor in my life first mentor actually was ever really stepped into my life and very simply one day said, hey, if I can teach you how to be me in an OR, would you be interested in that? And, you know, at that time, you're 20 years old and you're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> right. So that was my my introduction in, into sports medicine. But I had been in the fitness world long before that. And uh, that was that's how I met uh, Charlie, who's the individual I'm talking about. And he, he took me under his wing and groomed me for many years. And at some way, some point along the journey, I just realized that, man, it's manual medicine was a thing. Um, rehab was a thing. And while I loved orthopedics, what I realized once again was there were a lot of other places that I rather be than in an OR as much as I love being in the OR. And that's just out there experiencing life. You know, um, for me, one of the, I wouldn't say a core value, but it's one of the roots of, of my life. And it's something that I try to share with, with people that we work with and we coach these days is that at the end of life, really, when it comes down to it, what you have is memories 
and the more experiences you have, the greater the chances that you have more memorable memories. So that that's always been kind of my take was to go out there and experience life to, to, to the highest degree that I could. And more importantly, want to bring other people along that journey that we can share those experiences with. Love it. No, that's, that's good stuff, Alex. Now, Sharissa, so you really were a pioneer in your family. You go to undergrad, you get into medical school, and I think you, OB, was that what OBGYN? I, I actually started my residency in OB in Philadelphia. And then we, when Alex decided to go to chiropractic school, we relocated to Portland, Oregon, and I transitioned to um, family medicine with OB. So after my first year of OB residency, I transitioned to family medicine with OB. So for the first 10 years of my practice, I did full spectrum family medicine and I delivered babies. Yeah, I loved the OB and women's health part of my practice. That was definitely hard for me to give up. And and it was that most challenging on my family once I had kids. Sure, sure. Well, tell, tell us about both of you, you know, certainly going to undergrad and, and medical school combined often isn't cheap. As a matter of fact, we're sitting here recording this in late January, and lo and behold, my oldest daughter is a senior in high school and is is very interested in neurology, maybe neurosurgery, and we're looking at different programs, um, including one here at the University of Minnesota, which is a seven-year program, so you can cut off a year of undergrad, which would be awesome. But anyhow, what what was your guys' relationship with debt in this process? Did you have to, give it, given that it sounds like your families didn't come from means, so I'm I'm guessing you know you, you probably were having to use a fair amount of debt to finance your your education. Yeah, that's that's an understatement. You know, I I, <laughs> I think what happens is when when day one comes and you've gone you've worked your butt off for so many years to get into the program. Now the big question is like, okay, now that you've done all that work, how do you fund this? And I think for most people, there's day one that you walk into that financial aid office and you're looking at this like stack of papers and you're thinking to yourself, do I really want to do this? And there's this massive hesitation that comes over you. Is it the thing to do? Is it not the thing to do? So you've got that in one year, but then the other year, you have all these people saying, but you're gonna be a doctor. You're gonna pay that back like that quick. and all is going to be well and you have this inner battle that takes place so you know that's year one and you finally sign on the papers and you have to do that every year so but at the time you were in your last year you have become so immune to that initial response that you don't even logically and consciously think about what the repercussion is going to be and what does that actually stack up? Last time I saw this or looked into it, I think it was about three years ago now, but when you, they, they had figured out, and it might've been US uh, Newsweek or something, but they had figured out when you look at the amount of debt that a medical student takes on, on top of the loss of productivity, on top of the interest that that loan bears, it was something like $780,000 all said and done for somebody to go graduate and get themselves set up in medicine. 
And I promise you, they did not bring that number up in the financial aid office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is true. It's been the, like, the tail chase yeah. for the last couple of decades of our life of just feeling like no matter how much money we make, we are, we're, we're still living from paycheck to paycheck because, I mean, whether we're making a quarter million dollars, a half a million dollars, we're still not able to really get ahead because we have so much debt between <clears throat> our student loan debt and business loan debt and Alex opening his practice. And, and I don't know, somehow our mindset was just conditioned to think we'll deal with it later. Mm -hmm. And we just put it aside and we just did not have mentorship in that area of our life. Yeah. And we feel really strongly about not continuing this loop. I'll just add to that real quick. It's one of the hardships I think that we see with a lot of physicians today, um, you know, with what we do these days, we we're fortunate that we work with physicians and we help them out of those places that they're in. But through that, I would tell you that my experience has been almost every physician that I have spoken to within the past, call it 10 years now, who has that mindset of like, holy cow, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And I just don't have any way out. The number one reason that they feel attached and stuck in their current role as a physician is paying back that student loan debt, right? And they go, well, what else am I possibly going to do to be able to pay back that debt and maintain at least some minimal quality of life? And it, it truly becomes, we were talking about this just before, um, at some point becomes the golden handcuffs. Absolutely. Well, give me an idea of like, as you guys get out of residency, you're starting practice, what kind of debt load were you dealing with? You know, was it 200,000, 300,000, 500,000? What, what, what's the number? So each of us had about 300,000 before the continued accumulation of interest. And so I had maxed out my federal loans. So they were uh, somewhere around 200,000. And then I probably had another 100,000 of private loans. And same. Alex had about the same. So, yeah, between the two of us, we had, you know, we had the 600000 and then we had another $250,000 business loan. Crazy. So how did you decide to tackle that? I'm curious to know. Now, hey, you're in the real world. You're making some dough. What, what, what did you do? We Shoved just, it under the carpet. <laughs> we, like, we deferred and we deferred and we forbear and we forbear until we couldn't anymore. And then... Uh, and actually, we were able to, with Alex, for a lot longer, I went on an income-based repayment plan. And nobody ever told me about any of these. Like, I had consolidated my loans prior to, I mean, it was, you know, 2004 when I graduated medical school. So it was prior to the loan forgiveness, that piece that, a lot of people just had their loans forgiven. If you serve 10 years in an underserved hospital system. And honestly, I did probably nine and a half years with hospital systems that 
would have qualified, but I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about that forgiveness. And so, I mean, I would have absolutely stayed for another six months had I <laughs> known that I'm not going back now. And I didn't get, you know, all the things anyway. Um, I just think like, why would, I had financial advisors. Why would they not have told me about that? Or why did they not know about that? Yeah, and we did have a team of financial advisors. One of the things that Sharice and I have, uh, I think, a common understanding, vision, and appreciation for is bringing on people who are the specialists in their field and paying them their value so that they can help you navigate through your life doing the things that are important to you. And so we, we had a, a team, like an entire team of advisors that as Sharice is sharing, like just nobody ever brought that up. And, um, you know, I guess at the end of the day, it makes you wonder what the uh, intention is when, when you're working with people like that. Yeah, let's 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 talk about that, because I think that's, you know, I, I'm a financial advisor, obviously, and I, I'm curious to know, like, and certain people say, you know what, I don't want, I don't need a financial advisor, like, and, and you hear a story like this, and it's like, dang, you know, it, it makes makes us look bad. You know, it's like a doctor who prescribes the wrong medicine. You know, it's just. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. great analogy for sure. Yep. So I guess I'm curious to know, how did that change the trajectory of that? Did, did you guys say, screw it, we're going to figure this out on our own at some point? Or does it you still say, you know what, I don't want to deal with this stuff. I want to have a professional. And you found someone better. Like, how, how did you deal with that? I'm really curious to know. Once we that we were ignoring as much as we could and then paying the minimum that we could. And then once we had transitioned our lives to kind of the trajectory that we're on now. And I had transitioned to telehealth and Alex had transitioned out of his practice and started working in leadership and coaching. We actually had been introduced to a financial advisor who is was a physician and works, had started working with um, physician doctors who to help them get out of debt. We actually worked with him and he helped us see things a little bit differently. And we started focusing on debt payoff. And I, and I wouldn't say that was the right answer either, but we did pay off a significant amount of debt over a handful of years. Awesome. Um, we, in that we ignored <laughs> retirement and like other pieces of, of, forward-thinking wealth creation, mm -hmm. but but we're, we still focused on debt payoff for a period of time, and that was just where our mindset was, and that is fine, but at least we changed our direction and our mindset. I think now we are doing a little bit of all of it, more so, but in our change of direction, we also started learning how to think differently about creating wealth yep. and about how we make money and about how we're diversifying where our money comes from. And, and that I think is the biggest thing. Yeah. And I think that it's, you know, where you go back, that's where we started and where are we at these days? Um, and I say this, it might sound jokingly, but it's, I think just as an entrepreneur for so many years and it's man, 
It's been a long haul. We've done many different business startups and things along our journey. But at some point, you start to take on this, uh, this mindset and this mentality that you literally live out. And that is, it's just make money. I'll just go figure out how to make more money to, to be able to accomplish these things. And through that process, and it's, it's one of the things that we, we coach a lot actually these days, um, is that, you know, the, the Beatles had it right all along, right? Like one is the loneliest number. And when, when you started to understand that and we're going, okay, we don't want to be pinched into that position where we're dependent on any one source of revenue again, um, it's just like the floodgates opened and you know i think we've probably got five or six different sources of revenue these days um and we're adding more it seems like on a monthly basis that we're just you just get these ideas and going okay well we can do this and we can do that and and one of the things i think that that has done is it's not really attached us too strongly to any one given direction so we we can live out our authentic selves and our truth on who we are and what we want to bring to this world and what we want to accomplish on our journey. And that in and of itself has been massively freeing, if you will, in terms of not having to fit with inside of a box and do this thing this way. It opens up a tremendous uh, you know, canvas of, of self-exploration and it starts to really expand the mind on what is possible versus what's just the dream. And now for a commercial break. Every year, about this time of the year, I have physicians asking me, Dave, I hate the taxes I'm paying. How can I lower my taxes? How can I understand what the heck is going on here? Well, that's why we have put together a tax cheat sheet that really has almost everything that you'd ever want to know about taxes. Two-page document, super simple. I put together a few videos to walk you through it. All you have to do to receive this awesome document is tax the word cheat sheet. All one word, C-H-E-A-T-S-H-E-E-T to 833-343-2986. If you want to get your copy, of the 2023 tax cheat sheet, make sure to text the word, all one word, cheat sheet, C-H-E-A-T-S-H-E-E-T to 833-343-2986. Nothing better you can do for yourself than to get educated on taxes. And so my friends, make sure to download that cheat sheet again. You can text all one word cheat sheet to 833-243-2986. And now back to the show. First of all, I think I want to thank you guys just for being authentic. You know, like, gosh, we didn't have it all together. We're still figuring this out. You know, I think, um, I, I feel that way myself to a degree, you know, that, hey, I don't have all of the answers, but here's some things that have helped me along the way and might help you too. And I think everyone can appreciate, you know what, we made some mistakes along the way, but we're recovering from it and we're continuing to learn and it hasn't stopped you guys from still seeking assistance, obviously. And you picked up something each step along the journey. 
right? Hey, from the initial people, you probably learned some stuff from them and you got some of your own experience. And then you work with another advisor and then you gained something from him and worked on paying down debt. And then you learned, oh gosh, hey, let's have multiple streams of income. And now you're doing that. So not only are you learning, but you're doing, which are two very different and important things. And so congratulations to you guys on that. Now I want to revisit what happened? What were the circumstances? And Shariza, let's let's start with you of uh, the fact that, that you were in a practice, you were doing family medicine, doing some OB, and, and what happened that led to the point of, gosh, I, I need to get out of this and, and ended up doing telemedicine. Tell us about that part of it. Okay, so two major things happen. One was personal family stuff. So we had kids. <laughs> and, Problem um, number one. No, just kidding. <laughs> We've got two great kids. Totally healthy. We are fortunate to say yes. that, right? <laughs> but parenting was more challenging than we had anticipated. And one of our daughters has some additional needs that we didn't necessarily anticipate and it required us to just be present way more than we were able to be with the amount that we were working in both of our practices and so we just needed to be more available and um we couldn't depend on nannies um our families on the east coast and that they wouldn't have been helpful anyway. And and so I hope that they don't listen. <laughs> <laughs> I will forward this podcast to them. Anyway. They're not listening, um, I promise. <laughs> so anyway, and the other piece of it had to do with the hospital system issues. And so the group that I was a part of was like my dream practice when I came out of residency. I loved my practice for kind of the first five years and then a bigger hospital system took over and changes started taking place over the course of five years and so there were mass layoffs which affected morale i lost a handful of my partners because they left because they chose to leave so i went from a call group for OB of eight to a call group of three. And that, I mean, multiple things, but the immediate thing that was the thing that made me turn in my resignation was the 100th Epic rollout, the EMR rollout that we, they were requiring us to do. And that affects productivity. They don't pay us for that time lost. I had just come out of an Epic rollout impact from the year prior, which had impacted my salary, $50,000 for the year. And I mean, that it's like insane that is considered acceptable mm -hmm. to me. And I was being told that I was going to have to do another 17 hours of time that was going to impact my productivity. And I told them they needed to figure out how to pay me for that 17 hours, I'm an employee, 
employees get paid for time. If they can't figure out how to pay me for my time, then I will be handing in my resignation on Friday. And I didn't hear anything before Friday, so I handed in my resignation. And so then on Monday, the CEO of the company came to me and had proposals and and plans and I'm like no it's I was asking for the six months ago it's too late and so I had like made up my mind I made the decision didn't matter what they came to me with and that was that was the straw that broke my back <laughs> we did tell you we we're from the east coast yeah, right oh yeah, oh, yeah. You know, here, here in Minnesota there's a lot of passive aggressive people so you know, it's it's totally different than the East Coast mentality of, you know, I'm going to tell you when something's wrong. You know, West Coast is, is, is not, it's very much similar, I think, in some ways, you know, they're much more, I guess, open and confrontational about stuff. You not know. in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, not in the Northwest. So uh, I guess, you know, as, as you go through this, how did you stumble on telemedicine then? Tell us about that. So I started doing urgent care. So I gave uh, my notice to my practice and I just decided I was gonna do urgent care and some locums and give myself some time to figure out what I wanted to do next. And and in that I came across telemedicine. I don't know how at the first time around, but I came across telemedicine and I started doing telemedicine with one company initially. And so for about a year and a half, I worked with one company as a 1099 for, I don't know, I like, I just picked up, I picked up calls as I wanted to. And so maybe I made between $1,500 and $2,500 a month doing telemedicine work. And, And then after about a year and a half, Alex had found an article that was written by it was an entrepreneurial article that was written by it turned out that it was the president of teledoc at the time i didn't know that he didn't know that when he sent me the article but it was written by um, a doctor who was talking about being able to work in telemedicine full-time and so i reached out to him and um, sent him an email asking him a bunch of questions about you know, is is this something I could make as a full-time position? Is this something I can truly make myself successful in? And and I happened to be doing 1099 work with Teladoc. So when I had reached out with him, to him, it, I was working for that company, and he was as well. And and he was super helpful. He and he answered a lot of questions. And so I made the decision to transition to telemedicine full-time. I gave um, myself a handful of months. I think I gave myself three or four months notice um, and applied for a total of six licenses at the time and applied to about 10 companies. And kind of on my, you know, start date for telemedicine, I had no other things going on for you know, my urgent care work, except I did have some per diem that I kept so I could continue to pick up a couple of shifts of urgent care a month. I, I think initially I was doing a, a shift a week in urgent care and I transitioned. And the first couple months, there was a little lag because not all of my licenses had come through initially. And then as soon as they came through, 
uh, within like a uh, four to six month period of time, I had doubled my family practice income and had cut my hours in half. I went from working 60 to 90 hours a week for family medicine, no B, to working 35 hours a week. And we had no idea that that's what we were gonna end up doing. So why, why do you think it, you were getting paid more? You know, I, if, I were, if I'm a physician, I'm listening to this, I would be a little skeptical of, of that. Yeah, well, uh, this is this is one of the massive uh, misnomers that I like to break down for docs. When when you actually figure out the amount of time that a clinical physician is required to put into their job versus what the salary is that they actually make, what we have seen with lots of docs that we have helped through this process is that they average somewhere between 65 and $70 an hour. And I will repeat that. Per hour, physicians working $65, $70 an hour. And you go, well, how could that possibly be? And I go, well, number one is the massive demand that all the institutions and the healthcare facilities have placed on physicians. And when they say, here is your $200,000 salary for full-time work. It's actually not full-time work because they have to show up an hour to an hour and a half early. Then the patient that's their last patient spot of the day at five o'clock who walks in at 5.30 and is a complicated patient and they don't get out of the clinic until 7.30 and then they've got to go home and spend another hour to an hour and a half charting notes. Like, could somebody just be honest enough to go all of that time counts? It would count in almost every other professional venue other than medicine. And when you get honest about what you're actually being paid per hour for the hours that you're working, it's abysmal in the greater scheme of things. And I think the first piece is helping physicians understand that, yeah, fine, you might have a very large income comparatively, but there's also an exorbitant amount of time spent to earn that income, way more than 40 hours a week. Does that make sense? Sure. And how much do you get paid hourly for telemedicine nowadays? Between 180 to 250 and sometimes more, depending on how I am setting up my day. But at a baseline, that's what it ends up coming out to. And is that 1099 income? Is it yes. W-2? Does it depend on the telemedicine company? You know, maybe some... Absolutely. Um, but we have, when we realized that we were making so much more, we, well, Alex helped me kind of put a system around it because I would just work all day because I just don't have throttle. I just work. And I think that this is the case for a lot of, a lot of physicians. Like we don't have a throttle. And if you are burnt out in medicine and you leave med leave your like traditional medicine you will move into something else and burn out in that right. because so a lot of physicians that move into coaching they burn out in coaching because 
the mindset that our default system is just to work ourselves into burnout. And so unless we change our system and our model, we will just create the same problem. It's kind of like relationships. If you don't fix the underlying issue, it doesn't matter if you get divorced, you'll just marry somebody else that has the same <laughs> issues. Yeah. This is true. So I'd love to know when it comes to telemedicine, you know, it's probably not a good fit for everybody, but there's some people that it is a great fit for. So walk us through, you know, who is telemedicine great for and then who is it not from your experience of doing it and talking and helping physicians? Yeah. So it's actually interesting that you say that. Um, I don't think anybody goes into medical school thinking that they want to go into practicing telemedicine. And, um, and so I really don't think that anybody that decides to go to transition to telemedicine ever had a dream of practicing telemedicine. But at some point in time, telemedicine might be the right vehicle for your life. And so sometimes telemedicine is the right vehicle to give somebody back freedom and flexibility in their life and allow them to still practice the skill set that they've been trained in mm -hmm. and and sometimes that is somebody who's feeling burned out. Sometimes that's somebody who's a mom and they wanna have more flexibility with their kids or somebody who has an aging parent that they need to be more flexible with. Or maybe it's somebody who has a partner that travels for their job and they wanna be able to travel with them. Um, or maybe actually it's none of those and it's somebody that still wants to practice medicine in person but they actually want to figure out how to take advantage of tax benefits and and have some 1099 income right. and so you know i i think that we should be teaching our med students how to not be taking one W-2 job where they depend on that completely, yep. but that they have some 1099 income that they're moonlighting in so that they have one, options in life, and two, that they can take advantage of some tax benefits. And so telemedicine may be a good option for that. Not to mention paying down school debt, maybe, you know, and rather than having the travel to moonlight, well, now you can do it from the comfort of, of your own home. What about who, who is it not good for? So who's not a good fit? So I think those are all great case studies and reasons of why to do it. Who's not a good fit for telemedicine? I would say surgical, I just like that we're, we're not there yet. I don't, I don't know when technology gets there, but that's one straight out the, the gate. Although technology is massively pushing forward what is possible through telemedicine. I think that somebody who is not in those categories that Sharissa just listed, if, it's, if you're fresh out of medical school and you just want to go get some skill under your belt, that is a great place to do it is just in that clinical practice where you can develop your knowledge base. So I think that that's, that's probably the big category that you're looking at for who not. 
Um, most companies, like they want you to have some level of experience, right? They're, they're not, they're, they are raising the bar is what we've seen with regards to the requirements for who they're taking on board and actually filling these roles in virtual medicine with. And that's, that's one of the other things is that you ask the question, like, who's it not for? When you say telemedicine, that is one specific niche within the larger umbrella of virtual medicine. And now when you put that cap on top of it, I, I honestly don't know if I can come up with an answer as to who virtual medicine in some capacity is not good for because there are so many possibilities and potentials. We mentioned this earlier where, you know, physicians and not, not saying just physicians, but that's who we're talking to here. Really, you come out of your training not realizing how much you have developed in all of these other skill sets that you have learned through that process, let alone when you are actually working in clinical medicine for a handful of years. We somehow fall into this identity that we are a physician, not realizing that we're so much more than that. And virtual medicine is opening up the possibility for all of these other things to come to the surface in leadership and research in in business ownership and entrepreneurship like there's so many places where all of these roles are needing to be filled by people who have some skill set of at least a base knowledge in medicine and are looking to use other skill sets that they might have no, that's that's good. That's good. I will I will just add though that that I wouldn't totally rule out the ability for surgeons to have a role in telemedicine. Yeah. There are sure. some there in the future there's roles for surgeons in telemedicine within the world of artificial intelligence and and some of the robotics, but currently there's a role for pre-op and post-op. And then there's also mm. a role for consulting. So the surgeons can be acting as consultants over telemedicine to other physicians. And so there's still a role for even those areas in telemedicine where physicians can't necessarily see the roles. Um, there's We're like only seeing the tip of the iceberg and there's so many opportunities beyond that that are available actually. Very good. Yeah, so I guess as, as we wrap up the podcast, I know you guys um, do offer consulting, certainly telemedicine and helping people with that and getting them set up. Can you tell us a little bit about your program and what you do? Um, yeah, and so we I, I've been coaching one-on-one for the past two plus years. And so during COVID, I had a lot of physicians reaching out asking me how I created success in telemedicine. And so I ended up putting a curriculum together with the help of my husband. And we both got certified in coaching and I started coaching one-on-one. And um, this past year, we started working on putting that curriculum into a live coaching program. And we launched that program in November. We just finished our first cohort and it was awesome. And, and so we 
are now going to run our live coaching program twice a year and and then we'll have a continuity program for people that come through it and it's very comprehensive yeah and yeah we're just super passionate about like helping people helping physicians heal from the burnout and transition into using their expertise in in various ways and telemedicine being the initial bridge and the initial vehicle that gives them back some time, flexibility and freedom in their life and learning how to maximize the profitability in that, but also learning how to understand our worth because I think that physicians accept what they're given and, and there are so many professions that make so much more money than physicians and physicians are so much higher trained and i just think it's insane that we just say okay yeah sure we'll sign your non-compete yeah sure we'll take a hundred dollars an hour it's insane and i think that you know just to add a small piece on the back side of that um what we're passionate about is is working with physicians who are in that place of stuckness where they feel that they they are here now maybe they wish that they did some things differently maybe they wish they knew things differently but they are where they're at and they just feel like they are trapped and there's nowhere to go and they have that that dread of defeat we refer to that as a default life and what we're passionate about and, and what our program is designed to do is take those individuals that are set in default mode and walk them through hand in hand to the point that they become business owners, entrepreneurs, they are now trained, they are starting to heal from that mindset, mind health problem that they had, and we're helping them reclaim their life and create a life that they desire so that they can go out there and they can unleash all the greatness within them. And now as a community, we get to see these people flourish and bring an entirely different level of what's possible to their communities, to their families and to themselves. And it's just, it's been awesome, like truly awesome to watch so many physicians who who reclaim their life and just it's almost like they're reborn and through that they they fall in, in in love with their passions again they take their field of expertise in medicine and they start doing just mind-blowing stuff and opening these different ventures and paths that otherwise we all would never have seen because they would have remained closed mm-hmm. so i guess wonderful sentiment and and there's so many possibilities for people out there and i always encourage folks you are not stuck no matter where you are at today you know this you are you you do not have golden handcuffs on you have as a physician you have so many possibilities and maybe it's staying right where you're at and there is nothing wrong with that absolutely but if you want to explore other venues do other things you can make the time to do it through something like telemedicine or something even completely different so as we wrap up this podcast guys i would love to know from you now with your experiences your knowledge Tell us about what financial freedom means to you and when will you have achieved it? So I think for me, financial freedom is is for years now, it's been wrapped around this, but the idea that I can go where I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want, pay as much money as I need to pay, and I don't have to answer to anybody or any calendar. That's good. 
Sharisa, what about you? I think the concept of financial freedom definitely is, it's similar to me as far as the ability to be a good leader is is the ability to teach other people Mm -hmm. how to be great leaders. And so I feel like it's similar for the financial freedom for me. The ability to truly feel financially free will be at the place where I am also teaching other people how to own and and claim that for themselves and go out and teach it to others. And so, and the other piece of financial freedom is within that mindset of abundance, it's the ability to be able to give abundantly. And and we do give, and that has been something that we've been able to do a lot more over the years. But when there's not a limitation in my mind on how much we can give, that has a lot to do with my definition of financial freedom. Um, but my my active process has been about freedom of time, freedom of location, freedom of my decision-making process. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things that probably drives us the most now are the projects that come across our, our kind of windshield that we want to be able to give money to um, for a good cause. That's a, that's a huge driving emphasis for us to continue to go out there and push the boundaries of our personal growth so that we can bring that back to, to our tribe and our community and help them grow more. Um, the other question you asked was, you know, when when do you see financial freedom? And it's a it's an interesting question. And I say that because along the journey and, and we, so much we shared with you is we've learned to really leverage certain kinds of debt. So I don't know if there'll ever be a day that we're financially free because we're always learning how to leverage certain debts so that they have greater long term gains and returns. Yeah. No, that's that's good. A good, honest answer. <laughs> I don't know yet, but we're working on it, you know. And, uh, you know, I think everyone's in a different stage of the journey and you guys are well on your way to yours. And what an exciting time, exciting business. So people are curious about learning about telemedicine and your program and creating multiple streams of income. Where can they find you guys? So our um, website is sandroconsulting.com. And then the program link, um, we have our wait list up right now, is sandro-consulting.mykajabi.com backslash workshop. And I will send those links over to you. And then you can find us on kind of the, the, the run of the norm social media, plugged in LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. Um, you can find us there. We're probably... Uh, most most active, I think, uh, with doing interviews and podcasts and really just taking the, the voice to the people and um, letting them know that if this resonates with you, you are not alone. And uh, there are people that are in a position or have been in a position like yourself. And there is a way out of that. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thanks thank for having you. us. Appreciate it. It was a great time. All right, my friends, that wraps up another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. And remember, remember, my friends, to slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. 
Well, thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent financial advisor, where to the point now I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant and you're looking for a second opinion, I'm making myself available for 30-minute strategy sessions. And if you want to arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction which we are not appropriately registered or excluded. The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable, but we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast, I mentioned insurance products, insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of an issuing insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issue. You should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us with any info at www.daviddeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.